Good morning. How is everybody this morning? Good? So far? So far? All right. Um, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 17 here in a minute. Um, I can't remember if I made a version app event thing. I might not have gotten around to it, but you can always read it on your phone. You can read it on your paper Bible. You can read it on the screen. However you like to get God's word, I'm okay with it. As long as you're getting God's word, I don't care how you get it. But before we do that, I would love if we would take a moment and go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just can't thank you enough for your word. Today, as we dive into your word, as we read about the stories of the people who wandered around in the desert, the people who tried to follow you, the people who tried to obey you, we just ask that you would give us the wisdom and the understanding and the discernment that we need to apply your word to our lives, Lord. We ask that you would give us the curiosity that we need in order to dive deep into your scriptures every single day, not just here on Sundays, but every single day, and get knowledge and wisdom and understanding from your word. Father, I ask that you would be with me. I ask that you would make my words clear and concise, that you would make your word flow through me so that everyone here will know your will, Lord. And Father, we thank you so much for your son Jesus and the sacrifice that he made for us. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. And the church said, Amen. Amen. Okay, I have a question. I want to gauge, kind of gauge the room here before we get started. Who here puts together puzzles? Who's a puzzle person? One, two, three, we have three, okay. Y'all are, okay, so... We have a minority of puzzle people. Okay, my wife is a puzzle person. She loves, she loves putting together puzzles. I am not a puzzle person. I don't have the eye for it. I don't have the patience. She can just sit there with a puzzle on the table and she can just find a piece. Oh, that one goes there. Oh, that one goes there. I, on the other hand, am the kind of person who I will stare at that thing for hours and ne never find one piece. So some people are puzzle people. I am not a puzzle person, but Lindsay is. She's a puzzle person. Um, and we don't, we don't do puzzles as much now as we used to now that we have kids because it's hard because, you know, kids like to reach up and grab things. But I remember before we had kids, we used to always have a puzzle on the kitchen table that she would be working on. And she would, always, she would always build it on a piece of poster board so that if we wanted to eat dinner or had guests over, she could pick up the puzzle board and move it and put it in another room and then bring it back. And so, you know, we would always have a puzzle at one point or another. And the cool thing when you put it on the poster board is that when you're done, you can take that hodgepodge glue and you can do whatever mumbo-jumbo you need on your puzzle, and then you can frame it, and you can put your puzzle on the wall, and it makes a really cool piece of art. There was, one, there was one time I remember she was building this puzzle, and I was trying to help and not being very helpful. And because of the timing of it, life events kept coming up. We ended up having to move that poster board into another room multiple times, and it took us a long time to build the puzzle just because we kept getting distracted, other things got in the way, 
And so we had this puzzle that we worked on, we, she worked on for almost a year because it wasn't a hard puzzle, it just, it just took us that long to get it done. Well, unbeknownst to us, in the midst of all of that, a close friend of ours who we would hang out with decided it would be really fun to play a prank on my wife and steal one piece. So that when she got finished with this 900, and, or excuse me, this 1,000 piece puzzle, now it's a 999 piece puzzle, there would be one missing piece with the intention of you know, playing a funny joke and, and my wife would freak out and then, and then he would call and say, hey, I found your puzzle piece and give it back and everything would be great and it would just be a funny joke between friends. But that's not what happened. Because it took us so long, we worked on this puzzle for over a year, that friend lost the piece. Either it got washed in a pair of jeans or something. And so, and so now my wife gets finished and she gets the last few pieces and she starts to realize there's a piece missing. And so we have this 999 piece puzzle with one little gap right in the corner there where that piece was supposed to go. So it was, it was imperfect. And keep, bear in mind, we had already picked out the perfect frame and the perfect spot on the wall where we wanted to hang this puzzle. And we, we came up with all sorts of solutions because we were like, you know, our friend, he felt terrible about it. He's like, I'm so sorry I lost the puzzle piece. It was supposed to be an innocent joke. And, and we, we tried to come up with solutions. We thought, well, maybe we'll cut a piece of cardboard and we'll paint it. Or, or maybe we'll frame it up against a background that, you know, that kind of mirrors it or hides it. We even, we even went so far to consider, like, what if we just bought a whole brand new puzzle and dug through it until we found that one piece? But we didn't do that because that's a hassle. And so at the end of the day, we were stuck with this imperfect puzzle. And no matter how hard you try to make an imperfect, incomplete puzzle work on your wall, it's never going to work. Because you're always going to have somebody come over and say, oh, wow, that's, the, oh, you know, there's a piece missing right there, right? And so we ended up like, the, we just, we had this puzzle and we ended up boxing it back up and putting it on the shelf. And because you can't take an imperfect thing and make it work with the perfect frame on the perfect spot in the wall. It just doesn't work. Much like our relationship with God. We are imperfect people in relationship with a perfect God. And so the question I want us to wrestle with today as we dive in our scriptures is how does a perfect God interact with imperfect people? I want that to be on your mind as we're reading through the scriptures today. So I invite you to turn to Exodus 17, verse 8. I want to read this story here. It says, the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Ephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. 
when Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekites with the sword. Now this is one of those Bible stories that you probably grew up hearing in Sunday school. Most likely you heard it, have heard it at some point. And if you have, you probably heard the explanation of this passage that went something like this. Moses' friends helped Moses to rely on God. And when we are weak in our faith, we can rely on our friends to help us too. That, that's probably what the main point of that story you heard was. And that's not a bad interpretation of that passage. That's a perfectly fine way to read it. In fact, if you read that passage and you walked away thinking to yourself, I should rely on my friends to help me up with my relationship with God, I'm perfectly fine with that. There's nothing wrong with interpreting that passage that way. But if we're, if we're thinking about our pyramids method, remember the, the pyramids, we have this base layer, what does the Bible say? The next layer up is, how do we apply that to my life? And so, that in, that, reading that story that way, we're focusing on those bottom two layers, and that's important. But I want to I encourage us to dig a little bit deeper and read this passage in the broader context of Exodus. Which is why I asked at the beginning, how does a perfect God interact with imperfect people? That's a tip of the pyramid question. That's a big picture question. That's the kind of question that we should be thinking about and praying about and wrestling with and struggling with and trying to understand. And so as we look at this passage about Moses and Aaron and Hur and holding up their hands at the Battle of the Amalekites, I want to challenge you by saying, I don't think that the main point that God wanted the Israelites to understand was simply we should help each other out. I think that's a point, but I don't think that was the point. And the reason I say that is if, if we zoom out and we read this passage within the whole book of Exodus, we see that it's a continuation of the theme that we've been reading where God says, and in this way so that you will know that I am God. In fact, that's the whole point of the book of Exodus. If you... If you had to explain the book of Exodus to somebody who had never opened a Bible and they, they wanted the 10-second version of what is Exodus about, you could just tell them, it's so that you will know that he is God. That's the message that God is trying to get across here. And up until this point, all the way through Exodus, we've learned exactly two things. We've learned that God is perfect we are imperfect. God is strong, we are weak. God is good, we are bad. That's what Exodus has been setting up for us. Which raises that question. How does that relationship work? Remember, all the way back in the book of Genesis, God and Adam and Eve walked side by side in the garden. There was no fracture in that relationship between them. 
But because of sin, because of our imperfectness, we severed that relationship with God. And now there's something between us. And gone are the days where we can just walk next to God in the garden side by side. We can't do it. We can't handle it. We can't approach God that way. That's what the Bible is setting up for us here. And so one of the things that this passage does, and what it did for the Israelites who were reading it at the time, is it established the authority of Moses to stand between them and God to stand in for God for them. That was what God wanted the Hebrew people who were following Moses to see here. I have put Moses in charge. Because when they looked up on that hill, they saw Moses' hands going up and down. Moses is our leader. Moses is the one we are following. He is our ambassador for God. He is the intercessor. He is the go-between for us. This is for the Israelites. Otherwise, Aaron and her and all of the people fighting the battle, they would have just raised their own hands. They would have just went to God on their own, but they needed Moses to do it. God is working through Moses to defeat the Amalekites. They needed Moses. They needed a go-between. And so, we see that here in Exodus, at least, here in this passage, a perfect God interacts with imperfect people through an ambassador. And for the Israelites, that was Moses. Okay, and hopefully this is, there's an itching in the back of your brain as I'm saying all this. There's a problem, isn't there? There's a problem with Moses being this ambassador. Because if Moses is the ambassador between a perfect God and imperfect people. Moses is still an imperfect person, isn't he? If Moses is set up as being the one who stands before God, well then, who stands between God and Moses? There's a problem here. In other words, when you look at the nature of our right to stand before God. Moses didn't have any right to stand face-to-face with God and to stand before God than you and I do. And we see later as he goes up on Mount Sinai, he does stand before God. He does act as that ambassador, but that's not an indication that he was worthy. It was an indication that God allowed it. Because he's not perfect. He's an imperfect ambassador for the Israelites. Think about the priesthood. The priests go in and they do all of their sacrifices to atone for the sins of the Israelites. Well, if the job of the priest is to stand before God for the people, who stands between God and the priests? Because they need it just as much. It doesn't work. It breaks down. There's a piece of the puzzle missing here. Well, as you probably all have, can figure out, we have an answer in Christ. Hebrews 8, verse 1, he says, Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest 
who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So as we, that's Jesus, by the way. So as we, as we read on, as we think about Moses acting as the ambassador between the Israelites and God, we're going to see all of these different ways in which God interacts with the Israelites. And Moses is the link. Moses is the foundation upon which everything was built. And that's why it doesn't work. It worked for a time. It worked because God allowed it to work. But ultimately, if we want to apply this passage to our lives, we want to apply this to our lives, we have to understand that Moses is not our ambassador. Jesus is our ambassador. Jesus is the perfect high priest, the perfect one who was never sinned, who was able to take on our sins and stand before judgment for us because he was perfect. So, as we get into chapter 18, I want to jump ahead here to chapter 18, verse 1. It says, Now Jethro, the priest of Midian and the father-in-law of Moses, heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. After Moses had sent away his wife Zephora, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. One son was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And the other was named Eleazar, for he said, My father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Okay, I want to stop for just a second and back up. Um, if you're inquisitive, if, you've read, if you read this passage and you're like me, you might have instantly flipped back to see where all that stuff happened back here. When did Moses send Zephora back to Midian? When did Moses have another kid? At least that's what I did. That was the first place my brain went to. Um, and you wouldn't have found it. You would have looked back and you would have been like, okay, I guess sometime he had another kid. At some point he sent Zephora back to Midian. And if it gets to this point where if you're trying to keep track of the timeline of where things are happening, it gets a little bit fuzzy. Because this is the first time we hear about this. This is the first time we hear that Moses had another kid, that he sent Zephora back to Midian. At some point it happened, but the Bible doesn't tell us when exactly it did happen. At some point, Moses had another kid named Eleazar, but the Bible doesn't tell us when it did happen. It just tells us it happened. Uh, we can kind of get a few ideas. I mean, Eleazar must have been born after the people were delivered through the Red Sea because he named them after God's deliverance. Um, and it's possible, even that Moses had other kids that the Bible doesn't tell us about. In fact, it's more than possible, because if we go back to chapter 4, this is just a fun little note, this is before Eleazar might have been born, it says, so Moses took his wife and sons and put them on a donkey and started back to Egypt, and he took the staff of God in his hand. 
So, so here in chapter 18, we're introduced to all of these new people, these new things. And at some point, Moses sent his wife back to Midian. At some point, Jethro heard about all of the things the Lord had done. And regardless of when it all happened or how it all happened, at least I want you to notice that there's little timeline gaps that we're not getting. There's things that the Bible tells us happened, but it doesn't fill us in on the details. Because it's not important for us to know when exactly Eleazar was born. If God wanted to know, he would have put it in here. It's not important for us to know how exactly Jethro heard about all of the stuff that had happened. Because if God wanted us to know, he would have put it in here. But at the very least, we should notice it. I encourage you, as you're reading your Bible, I encourage you to try and pick up on those little details. Oh, that's interesting. I wonder why that is. At least notice it. Because it shows you're diving into Scripture, you're paying close attention, you're asking those questions. All of that to say is I want you to understand that when we read the Bible, the Bible is not a documentary series with a camera following somebody around every single day. You don't get every single little detail. We get glimpses. We get the highlights. We're getting little pieces of what happened. The important parts that God thought was important for us to know, he puts in here. And just like my wife's puzzle, it's important for us to understand that so that we can take these glimpses that we're getting and we can try and put them together and make them meaningful in our lives. Sorry, that was just a little side note. I think it's important that we understand that when we read the Bible. Anyhow, we get back to Exodus 18 in verse 5, and this is what happens. It says, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wife, came to him in the wilderness where he was camped near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. Oh, so we see two. Okay, good to know. I was wrong. Let the record show. I didn't even read that last time. I apologize. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. So bear in mind through all of this, Jethro is a pagan priest. Jethro is not an Israelite. This whole go-between ambassador thing that Exodus is setting up with Moses 
is great if you're already an Israelite, if you're already in the community, if Moses is already your leader. Well, then this whole ambassador go-between Moses thing is awesome. But what happens if you're not an Israelite? What happens if you're not someone who has experienced God's authority at the Red Sea, if you haven't experienced God providing for you the way the Israelites did? How do those people experience God? If you're not an Israelite, you're not going to understand the importance of God giving Moses this authority. Well, if that's the case, then it's going to make it really difficult for an imperfect person to interact with a perfect God, isn't it? And so what we get introduced to here in chapter 18 is the idea of testimony. See, God didn't personally interact with Jethro. God didn't send Jethro through the Red Sea. He didn't give Jethro water from the rock. He didn't give Jethro manna from heaven. Instead, Jethro is able to experience God through the testimony of Moses. See, God has already established that he wants to work through the Israelites to establish his kingdom. God does what he wants, and he picked those people. He said, yeah, you right there. You're going to be my people. You're going to be the ones that I build my kingdom through. He chose the Israelites. He said, I'm not going to use any other nations. I'm not going to use any other people. Why? I have no idea, other than God does what he wants. And because of that, Jethro, who is a pagan priest who's not an Israelite, the only opportunity he's going to have to interact with God, to experience God, is through Moses' testimony. We see that a perfect God interacts with imperfect people through the testimony of those who have already experienced him. A perfect God interacts with imperfect people through the testimony of people who have experienced him. And you know, you know what I find beautiful about Moses' testimony to Jethro? Look back and notice what he doesn't say. Moses doesn't go to Jethro with the big list of do's and don'ts. He doesn't start off by saying, you know what, Jethro, you really need to get rid of all your idols. You really need to worship Yahweh. You really need to worship the one true God. You really need to be obedient. He doesn't say any of that stuff, at least not to start. You know why? Because to Jethro, that would have fallen on deaf ears. Jethro doesn't care. He's a priest already. He has his own religion. He has his own gods. Meaning Jethro is, Jethro is well-versed in all of those religious arguments, and Jethro is going to have an answer for anything you tell him. He's a smart guy. He's got his own system of sacrifices and laws and, and idols that he worships and, and books that he reads. And so if Moses starts off by saying, you know what? The Lord our God says you need to do X. Jethro's going to say, oh yeah? Well, my God says I need to do Y. If Moses comes up and says, the Lord our God is the only God you need to worship. You need to worship our God. Jethro's going to be like, oh, my God says the same thing. What's your point? It's true. 
what Moses said would be true, but Jethro's not going to hear it. My point is this. You're going to interact with people who are like Jethro, who have an answer for everything. People who think they already know everything there is to know, and you're not going to gain any traction with them that way. It's not a matter of principle. It's not a matter of right and wrong. It's a matter of effectiveness. When you have Jethro's in your life who think that they are already authorities, you're not going to convince them by telling them a whole list of do's and don'ts and rights and wrongs. And I think if Moses would have approached it that way, Jethro probably would have gotten mad, taken his daughter and his grandsons and went back to Midian, and that would have been the end of it. But Moses, Moses doesn't approach Jethro that way. Read verse 8 again. It says, Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, and about all the hardships they had met around, around, along the way, and how the Lord had saved them. You want to convince somebody who's a Jethro in your life? Before you, before you open the Bible, before you pull out John 3.16 or Romans 6.23 or Acts 2.38, which I think you should read to people, but before you do any of that, if you have a Jethro in your life, you should just start with, this is the way God has impacted my life. This is the way I have experienced God. This is the goodness that God has brought into my life. This is how I have experienced God. And I promise you, if you do that, you're going to gain a lot more traction with people, and they're going to be a lot more open to, okay, I believe you. I believe God has made your life better. I'd like to know more. And then you pull out John 3.16, and then you pull out Acts 2.38, and then you show them because you've convinced them through your testimony. With, we're we're going to encounter a lot of people in the world who that's the only opportunity they're going to get to experience God because they've shut themselves off. They're not reading the Bible. They're not going to church. They're not listening to worship music on K-Love or Air One or MyBridge or any of those things like that. And so if you want to give them an opportunity to interact with God, do it through your testimony. And it's Moses' testimony, it's his description of how God has improved his life is what enables Jethro to know God. But it gets better because in, in a strange turn of events here, Jethro, who was formerly a pagan priest who now believes in God, ends up having something that he can then teach to Moses. It's beautiful how God works that way. Turn to verse 13. It says, The next day Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, What is this you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? 
Moses answered him, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it's brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Here's Moses acting as that authority. Moses' father-in-law replied, what you're doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me and I will give you some advice and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach him his decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times. But have them bring every difficult case to you, the simple cases they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this, and God so commands, you will be able to strain, stand the strain, and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, and Jethro returned to his own country. So, Moses is taking on his role of authority that God entrusted him with, a position God delegated him to, and it doesn't take long to realize that it doesn't quite work. Moses being the one person who stands between every single Israelite and God isn't sustainable, and so Jethro says, look, if you're going to be the go-between between the people and God... Out here in the desert with millions of people, it's just not going to work. There's not enough hours in the day. There's no way you can do it. You'll wear yourself out. And so Jethro, who most likely was relying on his past experience as a priest in Midian, says, you know, you should delegate some of this stuff. You should delegate some of the simple matters rather than being the sole go-between between the people. Why don't you select some capable men Teach them God's will. Let them decide the little things. And then you can focus on the big stuff. What we're seeing here is that God, through Jethro and Moses, is setting up the community. This hierarchy, this structure. There's an obvious parallel here with the way we interact with one another as a church. If you're... If you read this passage and Acts chapter 6 came to your mind, congratulations, you found a fingerprint. But if you didn't, that's okay. I want to read, I want to read Acts chapter 6 and see if we can make this connection here. This is Acts 6 uh, verse 1. It says, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing... The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. 
So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So you see this delegation, you see this interaction between the church, between the community. It's not a one-on-one thing. That's why we don't have single pastor churches. A lot of churches do. We don't. We have a community. We have elders. We have ministers. We have people who are working together in community because one person cannot do everything. This is 1 Corinthians 12. Because I want to make something really clear here. Before you read 1 Corinthians 12, notice how they talk about Moses handling the important things and all of the other people handling the, I don't call them unimportant, but it kind of implies the unimportant things. In Acts 6, the apostles are handling the important things and everybody else handles the waiting on tables. But I want to give a little bit of clarity that just because one thing is important, that does not mean another thing is unimportant. Keep that in your mind as we read 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 12. Paul writes, Just as a body, the one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one, but of many. Now, if the foot shall say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not belong to the body. Or excuse me, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where (coughs) would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Listen to verse 21. It says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I do not need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I do not need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And then he goes on to continue describing the metaphor there with the body. I'm going to read that one more time. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And I think through all of this, we have to understand that the church is made up of those parts, those people who might seem weaker but are really indispensable. 
A church, a church is not a building. A church is not chairs and TVs and pianos and buildings. If somebody, if somebody broke in to this church and stole all of the television screens in the middle of the night, we'd still be a church. If, if, heaven forbid, there was a failure in the electrical system and this building burned to the ground, we would still be a church. You can, you can build a new building. You can get new chairs. You can go to Walmart and get new TVs for like $300. All of that stuff is replaceable. But you can't replace people. You can't replace the person who decides to come in early to put some bread on a tray and some juice in a cup for us. You can't replace the person who gets out in the middle of a snowstorm and puts on their winter coat and brings their snowblower in and clears the walks because they thought to themselves, I would really hate it if somebody slipped and fell coming to church, so I want to make sure they have a safe place to walk. And you know, sometimes there's a spot of ice still on the ramp after all that's said and done. Sometimes we miss a spot. Sometimes we forget that there's bread in the freezer and we run out and we have to make a mad dash to Safeway to get some new bread. Sometimes we forget that there's a chorus in a song and we forget to turn the page on our music because we're imperfect people. A perfect God interacts with imperfect people through other imperfect people. Here's the bottom line. At the very beginning, I told you that this whole ambassador thing between the people and God was broken inherently because Moses was an imperfect people. And now I'm trying to tell you that God interacts through imperfect people with imperfect people. How does that work? I just gave you a paradox, didn't I? The reason it works for us and not for them, the reason God can work through us imperfect people and it didn't work for them, because they got sent into captivity, the reason God can use our imperfect testimony and work through us imperfect people, the one piece of the puzzle that's missing for the Israelites is Christ. That last missing piece, that link, that ambassador, that great high priest who makes it all work. The final link between us and God, the one upon which all of our imperfectness rests, is Jesus. He's the link. He's the foundation. He's the one that makes it all work. You have Jesus. As long as you have that last piece, God 
makes it all work. Let's go to God in prayer. God, we, we thank you because you have made our life complete. We mess up all the time, God. We fight. We don't do what we're supposed to do. We're disobedient. We're not perfect. We're not good enough. We're not worthy of your grace, and yet you still sent your son to die for us. You still love us that much that you would drag us out of our sin into glory and salvation through your son Jesus, and we just want to say thank you. We don't have much to give you. We have our obedience as best we can, we have our praise as best we can. We have our faith as best we can. And that's all we have to give you, Lord. And we just want to give you that. We want to give you all of our strength, all of our faith, all of our praise, and all of the glory that you deserve. We pray all of this in the name of your precious son, Jesus. And the church said, Amen. All right. Thank you all very much. I appreciate that. I invite you all to stand with me. I want to sing our song of invitation. This is